Hi, Craig. Everyone say hi to Craig. Hi, hey, Craig. Craig. Hello, hi, Craig. Craig. Good job, guys. All right. Well, hello, everybody. Hi, I'm Pex, the Tavern Custodian, also plebeian over at Frog God Games. And uh, currently got a couple of uh, interesting topics and folks to talk with them about tonight. And I'll uh, leave it at that, and we'll go on to Jason. Hi, uh, my name is Jason Zavoda. I'm a hobbyist, and um, I'm pretty well known in the Greyhawk community for my work on indexes and research projects. I do creative material, but mainly I've, I've done material for uh, Hasbro and uh, Knights of the Dinner Table for uh, research work. I'm Puddles from Strange Gods Podcast. We're a totally average podcast that you would not want to listen to. And we also have another podcast called the Swords of Misery Podcast, which is an even averager podcast that you would also not want to listen to. So just stay away from us altogether and you'll have a nice day. I'm Lucas Purrier, uh, Sketchbook LP on Twitch and YouTube and most other places. TW2 Creations on uh, Drive Through RPG. I'm an illustrator. I've drawn for more people than I've drawn for myself. Um, that's about it. You appear to be having some connection issues. Oh, I was. I didn't know that. You you cut off halfway through your sentence. I think that might have been push to talk early. Possibly. No. Where did I end? I've drawn for more people than... Oh, then I've drawn for myself, and that's about it. Okay, uh, I'm Andrew from FASA Games, uh, land developer for 1879, uh, steampunk uh, sequel to Earth Dawn, and uh, also do some other stuff. I've uh, got a uh, system of my own I'm developing over on Patreon, uh, building some stuff for Pathfinder and a little of this, that, and the other. I, I try to stay busy. Uh, you'll find me as Fasa Andrew on Discord and most social media. If you go over to Mastodon, I'm currently listed there as Bread and Alpacas. And there's a story, but you don't want me to go into it. All right. Well, like I said at the very beginning, we got some interesting choices tonight. So does anybody really want to uh, pick the first one out there? What is the paralyzing fear of success? I'm glad you picked that one, Puddles. What would you like? All right, to fine. Let's not do that one. Let's do, <laughs> do half races make sense in the way they are generally presented. No. No. Next topic. <laughs> All right, go on. Well, I'm generally unfamiliar with the new way of doing half races. I mean, for me, it's just half orc and uh, half elf, so. Well, I'm not a fan of how they're really presented because they're usually like the best of both worlds and they're very beautified or they have the best assets from both sets of parents there. I like the more hideous, deformed, uh, realistic approach to it than the way they are generally presented in today's age. Would you rather not just have a roll of the dice to see which traits you get from each parent's? 
I mean, it gets a little gamey. I, I just like the more realistic practicality approach to it, where if monstrosity breeds with, I don't know, elf, it's it's not going to come out all all pretty at the end. I mean, if you want to go for reality, they genetically probably wouldn't be able to breed, right? Right. I mean, some things wouldn't be able to breed with one another. Well, exactly. I, I agree. With so that. if you're gonna if you're gonna have a fantasy fantasy characters, might as well make them all pretty. Cause they're yeah. more fun to play. Nah, you want some ugly ones in there too. Yeah, but do you want to play the ugly ones? Yeah. Sure, I love yeah. Ugly characters. Most of the core races in the game I'm making yeah, yeah. are the ugly ones. I played a character in Murps years ago who was a half elf who down ended his appearance stat on the uh, on the character build, and most people assumed he was half orc and just told people he was half elf so he wouldn't get lynched. Nice. Um, I've been. It, it was it was fun because I, I ended up using the fact that this guy was that like audibly ugly as a sort of presence attack. It, it was it was it was amusing. I've been gaming for forty two years, and it's like that Star Trek episode with you. We've all been the dog. After a while, you just you know you want to do something different. You know, all that said. Um, the games that I'm most involved with don't even have half races. Um, the FASA cosmology, Shadowrun, Earth Dawn, 1879, don't, it doesn't have half races. Uh, you get one or the other being dominant um, in the genetics. And so if a dwarf and an orc have a kid, the kid is either a dwarf or an orc. The, the, they don't have uh, features of the other parents so much. The only thing that uh, we've ever kind of allowed for that is coloring, and that only works with humans and elves. Um, elves tend to have weird hair colors, and if a human and an elf have a kid, the kid may have a weird elven hair color. I know Mastara doesn't do half races either. Uh, they make a brand new race, in fact. So if you take a gnome and a troll, if they breed, they produce a knoll, in fact. That even makes sense phonetically. Right? Well, that's where gnolls come from, the crossbreeding of those two races. Which might explain why gnolls are so grumpy. Aren't gnolls hyena folk? They are. In my game, because I played... I played EverQuest before I played Dungeons and Dragons, so my gnolls are wolf people. Yeah, I think, Lucas, you're letting off your push to talk too quick there. You keep cutting off at the end. I, I probably have a delay that I wasn't paying attention to, or my button's just not wanting to stay down. Yeah, That's I just fair. cut off the last syllable of down there. Well, we can figure it out, I think, possibly. Okay, so anyway, pardon me, Tia, distracting. We were talking about why you should or should not even have these characters. Well, I, I like it... the idea of half races being like a pug. Like, 
you have everyone thinking, oh my god, they're so cute. And then objectively, you look at it, it's like, it's got breathing defects. It's awful. It can't swim because its head's too heavy. This thing should not be alive. Yeah, I look at pugs and go, ew, who thought that was a good idea? Exactly. Exactly. You know, so I don't. I, I don't get why people think they're cute. Uh, you know, my, my immediate reaction to a pug is just to... Kick it. Far away. Uh, you know, at least leave the room so that I, I don't do something that the pug owner will not appreciate. I mean, in See, pugs' me, defense, me, they're dogs and all dogs. Come on. All dogs go to heaven. All dogs are great. But they, they should not. They should not have been a thing. All dogs go to heaven. Pugs go to the trailer park. Hey, they if the trailer park is filled with bones and chicken straps, strips, scraps, scraps, then that's heaven for them too. Yeah, that was the thing about uh, you know, dog heaven being uh, spending all their time chasing squirrels because dog heaven is squirrel hell. Yeah, I think if you're going to have half races, I, I would really, at least in the games I would run, I'd play them in the opposite direction. They would have defects. Um, if they exist at all, half races that is, or they they would uh, not exist at all, and it would probably just create a new race or a hybrid race that's called something different. And you you can get to a whole like random table of that has X feature from Y parent and X feature from Z parent. Yeah, very like setting specific. I mean. You know, the DM always has their choice, uh, but it's hard when the setting has a lot of examples of the half, you know, half this, half that. I do mainly Greyhawk, and unfortunately, they're very half. Uh, they have a lot of uh, different things in the lore about uh, half races. That's a fair point. The setting, if it's already established that half races are present in a muck and they are this way, and it's hard to fight that unless. Unless you just outright house rule it. I mean, that's as simple as that, in my opinion. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just don't, li- uh, don't really care for the concept in general. Um, I'm kind of, I guess I'm kind of with the, the idea that, okay, it's either going to breed true to one line or the other, or you're going to have something that probably isn't going to survive infancy because it just doesn't work. Well, I mean, that's when the races are too different, right? But if you look at two dog breeds, some of the like the prettiest dogs are half-breeds. Yeah, and then there's uh, the ones that this friend of mine accidentally had. I'm trying to remember what he had. He had some uh, Korean breed... And this uh, Rottweiler up the uh, block got at her. And the puppies were the ugliest things. I mean, people who were dog people were like, oh, my God, what is that? Yeah, um, probably a Sharpay. But um, you're talking about how close something is and whether or not it's viable. Elephants are pretty close to each other, but there's never been a successful crossbreed grow out of, like, year one. Well, it's all about genus over, you know, it's, I mean, is everything in that thing a canine? Because, like, all wolves, 
all dogs come from wolves and they all the breeds have bred out of um you know a, a different um you know general dogs that have been specifically bred if it does survive infancy i, I imagine a shorter lifespan altogether or a rare i mean countless miscarriages and stuff of that nature well, you find all kinds of genetic damage with pure breeds in mm-hmm. dogs. Well, you know, you're you're breeding it back into the line. Uh, your genetic load is going to be huge. I want purebred elves to have deformities, or purebred anything to have deformities. Well, you, you should have that with any closed society. So if you had a you know, a society of closed elves, they should be getting their, you know, genetic mix of mutations if you play it that way. I mean, a case in point to that example would be like the Dark Elves, right? They eventually spawned, they got secluded off from the pure races, and they evolved to their habitat, quote-unquote, depending if you're going with the kitchen sink, forgotten realm setting, of course. You're going to have genetic anomalies uh, even in an open population, you know, look at uh, the um, incidence of birth defects in the United States as a whole. Albinoism as well, that kind of thing. Yeah. Acromegaly, dwarfism. You want to, you want to simple. Huge, sorry. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just saying it shoots up in an incredible amount if you have a closed population. Oh yeah! Anytime you loop back uh, into the gene pool, into a into a smaller gene pool, uh, your genetic load expresses itself greater. Just in an average population, look around you and count the number of people who are wearing glasses in the room, and, and as opposed to people who are not. That'll give you a measure of the genetic load of the population you're standing in the middle of, and that right there plays back to what we were just talking about that we should be seeing these kinds of things in these populations these are fantasy games we sanitize we clean them up we we have our pretty elves we have our strong orcs we should see little scrawny orcs who can't keep up we should see elves who are Ugly enough that, that other elves cross the street to avoid them. I um, mean, you probably do. They've just been killed because they weren't pretty enough or exiled. That could be a thing you could play with in a uh, game system that uh, the dark secret of the elves is that they uh, commit infanticide uh, with, with any child that doesn't meet their standards. Or there's Spartan elves. And uh, if you're playing wealthy adventurers, you're not exactly going to be slumming it with the lower castes. And you can go the other yes. way. Like orcs, the uglier you are, the more battle-hardened you look, probably. And the prettier you are, the more outcast you'll be. Because ugly is also on a spectrum. And in the eye, well, ugly and beauty in the yep. eye of the beholder. How about, has anybody tried a system that maybe chose which traits were fixed from the mother and which traits came from the father. So like if it was a orc father, human mother, or reversed, it would have different stats and sizes and stuff like that. I'm sure there's a table out there somewhere. Just got to go digging for it. Wow. And I thought, uh, I liked crunchy systems. (laughs) Well, like in humans, the, 
the baldness marker comes from your mother. So if her father was bald, your child is more likely to be bald. I colored you. Daltonism, so on and so forth. There's all sorts of stuff that's uh, sex-linked. I'm sure it's out there. I mean, that's the the fan world. There's got to be some table for it. So anybody who's listening, um, if you want to drop a URL into the chat for this uh, particular podcast, if you happen to know where such a table is. Come on down to Tinker's Tavern Discord and let us know about it. Are you talking to the listeners that are going to be listening to us, like on on the when you put out this episode on the recording platforms? Yes, we are. Okay, cool. You future listeners out there. Yeah, you know, you know, you, Make you must be tag the relevant people because otherwise we'll forget all about you. Yeah, uh, yeah, must be present to win. Uh, you know, if you if if you're not listening to this show live, we've already if moved you're on. You're not important. Then you don't matter. And it's time you learn that. As my father always said. We are getting the the, the music the scene change music here. We are? New topic. Okay. Someone else pick one this time. Tabletop RPGs and popular media. So we're talking television, online, radio, magazines. Everywhere, popular media, because okay. I'm I'm of the younger generation, so, and I feel like you guys, some of you at least, are from the older, because I heard someone say they've been playing games for forty years. That's a lot longer than I've been alive. So how <laughs> was how was uh, like tabletop RPGs? You hear stories about how they were viewed as oh, it's Satan's Satan's media, but then like I tried to look that up, and I don't see any actual. Oh, there was like, a whole huge thing everywhere. about that. They call it a satanic panic. Well, back in my day. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, tell us, tell us all about back in your day. Elbridge Farm remembers. Well, I missed all that because I grew up in New Jersey, so we were pretty open to things. Oh, I'm in Texas. We're, we're probably still not that open about it. Yeah, I would grow up in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, which is the home of the Southern Baptist Convention, and um, it got messy. Horrible convention. Great cosplay. Well, to answer the question, I think most recently, everybody's familiar with the Stranger Things. It's very popular. That's been on there. The oh, yeah. Stranger well, Things? I mean, they've got the whole box set now. Box set came out of it. I think that's in uh, mainstream stores like Walmart, Target, and GameStop, and those kinds. And then there's all the live play session stuff on Twitch and YouTube now as well. Mm-hmm. If you go back, though, um, I started to tell this before uh, when we were still green rooming, um, and uh, Puddle said to hold it uh, for when this topic came up. Yes, in the, I did. Uh, so all you listeners can thank me. So. X-Files. Um, you remember a trio on X-Files called the Lone Gunman? Nope. Yes. Okay. Uh, you'd have to have watched X-Files, uh, and, you know, that show's been gone off the air for <clears throat> years. 
there were these three guys who were sort of conspiracy theorists, computer hackers, whatever. Um, they did an episode that explained how these three guys originally met and how they got into all this mess. It happened at a, con at a um, kind of a DEF CON type of convention, one of these um, tech uh, in intelligence, etc. conventions. At one point, two of the guys decide they got to go find Langley, the third guy. They find him in the back of his booth running a D&D &D session for some people. And he's kind of annoyed that he, you know, he's in the middle of DMing this. Yeah, there they are. The guy with the long blonde hair was played by Dean Hagland, who at the time was a, a stand-up comedian. And so, you know, they bust in on him while he's DMing uh, this this session of uh, of Dungeons and Dragons uh, for some people at the convention, and he's really kind of irked that they busted in on this gaming session. I looked the guy up and dropped him an email and said, okay, I gotta ask, uh, was this something that was just in the script, or do you actually play? And he said, yeah, that was my personal uh, DM screen on the table. That was not a prop. And I was like, awesome. yes, Langley is, is, is a, a fellow nerd. I, I, can, I can dig this. I mean, just thinking about it, now that we mentioned it, like Buffy that was on there, uh, IT crowd, um, even the movie ET, and if we all remember, there was a really good cartoon series called Dungeons and Dragons. I do oh, not. Oh gosh, I saw a group of people doing a doing those characters as a cosplay just recently, and it was phenomenal. They just did it as a Spanish car commercial. Huh? Characters from the animated series. I'm kind of interested more in what's today rather than, you know, what we were looking at 20, 40 years ago. Because um, there's, there's a real big explosion of Dungeons & Dragons. And partly I think it's due to the, the modern exposure, like, you know, Big Bang Theory. Just in their last season, they did a huge, and a, one of their few good episodes about uh, playing Dungeons & Dragons at Will Wheaton's house. Now I remember the show uh, James Franco was in before he got real famous in movies was Freaks and Geeks. It was one of their better episodes, and he played Carlos the Dwarf, and it was hilarious. There was uh, there's an animated series called The Regular Show, kids TV show, that uh, did a whole um, episode about uh, role gaming and the two main characters getting into it with one of their arch rivals and um, it playing out in the, in the game world and then kind of bleeding over. It was, it was bizarre. <laughs> I've seen some weird stuff. Uh, the regular show went in some strange directions with it. This was just a couple of years ago. But we're really seeing a lot of, um you know, 5e stuff that is, uh, and before that, but right now we're seeing a lot of 5e stuff popping up in, you know, pop culture and uh, movies, TV, and, um, you know, more than just Big Bang Theory and Stranger Things. I, like the woman from the um, Daredevil Netflix, she is a big proponent for Dungeons and Dragons. 
she's a big nerd and she has her own her own show on youtube as well um the up up down down guys for from wwe have a uh, D and uh, play session that they do once in a while, and I think that's kind of cool because, like, twenty years ago, I was telling pro wrestlers, "Hey, try role playing games. It'll help with your promos and your characterization." Is that the is that the one where they play all fighters, the wrestler guys? Uh, I haven't seen it uh, all the way because, but I don't think they all play fighters. Yeah, there's one show out there that's like jocks for uh, gamers, a kind of deal. And then, and the group uh, is, is all famous people that are big macho guys into sports and wrestling, uh, action stars, whatever. And it's a whole group of fighters that they play. It's hilarious. <laughs> oh, Jocks Machina? Yes, that's it. That's big it. Show is a wrestler in there. Uh, but this is actually a whole – everybody on the thing that I'm talking about is – Pro wrestlers like Xavier Woods and uh, Ember Moon. Oh God, I, I'm just picturing in my head Randy Savage, the DM, and my <laughs> going into laughing hysteria mode. Oh yeah, would you roll a d20 for me, brother? Oh, that's not a good saving throw. <laughs> hey, you know, let's while we're on the top on that topic, uh, what about Vin Diesel? Oh, he's a big nerd, too. Vin Diesel plays? Yeah, he does. Vin Diesel's been playing D&D for... I'm looking at his Wikipedia. He actually wrote the foreword for 30 Years of Adventure, A Celebration of Dungeons & Dragons. Um, In the movie Triple X, he had a fake tattoo of his character's name put on himself uh, for for the filming. That's hilarious. His character's name, by the way, is Melkor. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. It is. You could tell him that. Well, that oh, I the, will. The I will. Character, I really, uh, really will. Yeah, he's this. Vin Diesel's this huge D and D nerd. Yeah, and he's uh, been on uh, Critical Role. There go, Jason. Sorry. Sorry, and I was just saying the latest is uh, Joe Manganiello. Um, you know, he's he's a big D and D proponent. Yeah, and uh, Diesel's been on Critical Role, I believe, too, for like a guest uh, spot thing. And it was a good episode, actually, for those that like Critical Role. And he was on that Jock's Machina thing that we were mentioning a minute yeah. ago. Yeah, the Jock one. It's now a funny concept. Being, yeah, now the question being, can we get other game systems into mainstream media the way D&D is getting there? Because there's so much besides D&D. No, there isn't. Liar. Lies and slander. There's just Pathfinder. Forget D&D, just Pathfinder. Uh, Now, can you play that on your Nintendo? I I think it's a much harder sell, and the reason I say that, it's like Superman. Everybody who says that that recognizes that's comics, and they got a visualization of what Superman is. Same with D&D. It's got that everybody who says D&D knows we're talking about uh, role-playing games, even if we're not playing D&D from Watsy or TSR. It's just synonymous with one another. So I think it's a much harder sell, a much harder pitch. Um, However, we have seen a slew of Cthulhu movies, some of which are better than others, but it's there and it's not really mentioned, but Cthulhu himself is, which is a gateway into like Call of Cthulhu if you get into the super fans of it. Yeah, D&D is like the 
name brand tabletop RPG like a lot of older people I know call every console a Nintendo and every soda a Coke unless it's Dr. Pepper I, then I, it's a Dr. Pepper. I used to call yeah every yeah. every role playing game D and D is like oh we're we playing D and D is like no this is Pathfinder it's like hey we're playing D and D it's like I didn't yeah. actually know any better when I first started I just thought everything was called D and D. Also something to think about with like gaming getting into popular shows and stuff like that is that remember D&D is owned by Wizards which is owned by Hasbro which has a really out there marketing marketing team or yeah, licensing they, team um yeah they're they're able to pay for product placement whereas right. whereas the you know Catalyst Studios doesn't have the budget to be able to get Shadowrun into a TV show well, it's not only that. I mean, you mentioned product placement. That goes beyond the physical. It goes on to online as well. Because, like, Google, getting in the top page of Google for, like, an RPG search would be huge for a company. But you got to have the big bucks to back that up. Heck, I can't even get my own game at my own table. Well, I think d and is just synonymous with fantasy RPG. And, you know, it could be Tunnels and Trolls. It could be RuneQuest. But... It's really everything is kind of conceived of as D&D by anybody who doesn't know. I mean, it's like you're a new soft drink company and you're trying to compete with Coca-Cola. Well, how the hell do you do that? It's the same question here or the same analogy here, I believe. Well, like on uh, Big Bang Theory, they have a, um, a talisman, Games Workshop talisman board set up and they're talking about D&D as if that's the board game they're playing. Talisman's a great game, but yes. But if you try to explain that to somebody who's not into the hobby, you're just, you're really like a mathematician just talking about math, or somebody who loves risk talking about their roles, that roll after roll on risk. I, I think how you do this, and it's a very good question, is you have to cater something to the DMs that have tried... Because they're the ones going to try and redo things, and then they get it's their job to sell it to their table or say, "Hey, we're going to play something different tonight." So, however you go about it, I think that is the the keys to the kingdom. There, how do you entice the DMs to want to try something new? I would disagree with that because DMs really? will try something new, but they getting the players you, to that, actually that's, go that's, along with it. Well, n- n- no, my point was more like if you if you go after the DMs, you're going after an already playing population. You're trying to convert from D&D to new systems. But if you want to attract new customers that haven't necessarily been playing either rather than stealing from like D&D's base, then you would want to attract players, right? Essentially like produce DMs or have people want to DM something entirely new without even going by D&D. Like, someone who's never had Coca-Cola before will be much more likely to try something something new and interesting, rather than go for, oh, the big name brand that everyone likes. I can see that argument. I, I sort of agree with it, actually. I mean... It, Thank you. Yeah, it was a good point. Um, I, I think uh, capturing a new audience would also be a good way to go about it, but I still think my point's better. Hey, this wasn't this wasn't an argument of which point was better. Okay, don't <laughs> don't make it into that. I had a, I, was, I, was feel, I was having a good time, man. What you gonna get a new audience? But somebody has to bring them into it. Like someone right. has to say, "Hey, we're gonna try this out," to get those other three or four people to 
do something with them. I mean, for lack of a better, you need your pushers. Who are the pushers in this uh, goal? And Hasbro's being massively successful at it right now. Because we're seeing an explosion of interest just that goes with this business of seeing, um, you know, Dungeons and Dragons in, in current media. We're seeing an explosion of interest among people who've never played before, women who are, are really, a, a, you know, just were never really included in D&D in such a massive way. And it is, it is just, uh, it's incredible to see it happening now. There are going to be, 40 years from now, there are going to be a lot of nerds who are reflecting back to 2019 when they were playing D&D. 5 has done a lot of good things for the hobby. It's brought a lot of new people in and a lot more publicity um, in the online, well, in all mediums, actually. So I thank it for that, even though I don't really play it or want to. The question then being, how do the rest of us who are trying to produce systems that go into other genres that you know whatever have different mechanics etc how do we manage to to ride the tail end of this wave and maybe manage to get our systems out in front of people who have tried D&D and are thinking well what else is out there how do we help them discover that i think well, there's there's popular media which is what everyone what we've been talking about right now but then there's also social media which has been rising a lot you have influencers with twitter snapchat youtube etc and they haven't at least not so far as i know they haven't had a huge influence in that as in like i don't know if you've been following recently the huge massive drama that's been with like beauty gurus and that's been something with like millions of followers have unsubscribed or whatever can you imagine the kind of press um, tabletop RPGs would get if that was mentioned in, I don't know, a Snapchat video two seconds long. Well, yeah, I, I think influencers is a, a thing too. I mean, we have Satine Phoenix, for example, Games right now, um, Critical Role Lady, if you're not familiar. Um, she's doing a fantastic job and she's producing a show for us. It's also fantastic. So I, I think you're right on that puddles. But I think another angle to this puzzle would be... Um, Look at Fantasy Flight. They have a big IP of uh, Star Wars. And it was a show before it was a game. And it's a very popular game. So I think maybe some things along that line, getting some IPs that are well-known, and we know a billion of them have failed uh, who try to do the IP route from famous uh, television or movies. But it can work. We've seen it work. Now, there are also the things of, like, with the open gaming licenses, get your name out there by doing a module or something for the game everybody plays, and then if they trust that publisher, maybe they'll try to see what else that publisher makes. Well, I mean, I, mean I was just saying with Frog God Games, you look at it and, you know, they have their Swords and Wizardry system, but really what they, they're rightly hammering is their 5e, the way that they did the Pathfinder before. Right, it just makes more money. You gotta eat. Yeah, yeah, you gotta keep the company afloat. Um, we're gonna do some, just to our defense, we are gonna do some more unique things with Swords and Wizardry in the future that I can't talk about right now, but we haven't forgotten about it. But it's usually whatever's popular, whether it's 5e, Pathfinder, or whatever comes in the future, that generates the majority of our income. Um, whatever, le whatever 
other things that can generate some income, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to do and push toward. But we got to go with what the market's demanding, supply and demand, simple as that. But I think it's like, the, you know, the question Puddles asked and, you know, what you're saying about how do you get into this is that you have to just, you know, we have this unique opportunity with social media and it is really fractured into a lot of different formats. And what you have to do is follow all of them that you can. You've got to get yourself out there. Yeah, I mean, it's not as simple as Facebook. There's Facebook, there's Twitter, there's Instagram, there's MeWe, 50 other things out there. Um, you just got to keep hammering at it. Like using Twitch to show yourself in middle of production like so that people can talk and communicate so you can talk about what you're working on while people are watching you actually work on it. Well, like I just discovered Twitch, and uh, I mean, Frog God having... You know, Alyssa Fadden is an amazing uh, Twitch broadcaster. Her show is incredible. She's a great lady. Entertaining. Like, I've even started, when I do art for different companies, I start asking, hey, may I stream what, what I'm working on to help promote what I'm working on? There's a, uh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just saying that's the key. You 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 have to take that step, and you have to put yourself out there. Yeah, Twitch doesn't work for me because I just I can't write with that kind of a distraction. But uh, there's a hashtag on uh, the Fediverse on uh, the on Mastodon and so forth. Uh, hashtag am writing, and. People will follow that hashtag just to see what people are doing. You use that when you're actually working on something. And so I'll put up a post saying, um, you know, working on connections for this NPC, hashtag am writing. And then a little later, uh, put up something, you know, 800 words uh, done on connections for this character taking a break and writing. I get people who will follow that and and follow the progress of, of the work um, with with uh, across my posts. And then they want to know, well, what, what is this that you're working on? What is it? Where can I find this thing that you're writing? Yeah, writing isn't as visibly impressive as drawing or painting. It there's just not that immediate uh, fulfillment. Another thing I just thought about it is um, licensing. Like, look what uh, Watsy and TSR did with all the video games, the pinball machines, the toys, and all that. Uh, I'm not saying they were profitable. Probably lost some money there, but it did give you exposure. No exposure that people have memories of. But uh, licensing an unknown game to a video game company is like license is like submitting a unli- unsolicited idea to them. Everybody that works at that company has an idea. You probably don't have enough of a following to get them to go. Hey, let's stop work on this multi-million dollar project over here and start from scratch and work on your little idea over here. Wizards well, stuff has that backing to bring in like the Neverwinters and stuff like that. Yeah, it took a while uh, 
for uh, Battletech to get big enough that vir- that the virtual world pods were finally built. That 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 was a big investment in money just to build the things. Um, the property had to become really massive before anybody was willing to sink that kind of capital. Right, and I wasn't speaking from a brand new guy, but somebody that's already existing in the company that is not a Watt CTSR. Now, FASA used to be a much bigger company um, back in the day. We're, we're still having to rebuild um, from, from then. But if, but, like, yeah. Fantasy Flight or uh, some of the other bigger guys, I mean, Frog, Frog Eye Games has plenty of content. I don't know if we'd ever want to go the video game route, but if we did, there's plenty of stuff for them to pull from. It's not like we aren't known. You know, in the old days... Um, FASA licensed out Shadowrun, and there were like what three or four different uh, console versions of Shadowrun. I don't even remember at this point <laughs> a bunch of it. There's a whole FASA interactive division in order to do that. Did they license out Mech Warrior to, Wiz- um, to the um, miniatures game, or was that something that was purchased? The Mage Knight people. The. Uh, we we sold off the rights to BattleTech in a couple of different pieces. Um, the video game rights went to Microsoft and then bounced around, and eventually Jordan Weissman got them uh, again. Uh, the tabletop rights uh, went off to Tops and Catalyst. So it it the. The property got split as far as the the format of it. Yeah, I was always sad. I always thought BattleTech it had the it had the potential for being something like Dungeons and Dragons for the sci-fi world. Um, you know, for sci-fi RPG, merchandising, mm-hmm. movies, TV. There was an animated series there for a little while. Um, we did a bunch. There was a bunch of stuff. It just there, there were problems with the economy and the market in general. Um, about the time that Battletech was really starting to pick up serious momentum was about the same time that the, indus- the gaming industry started collapsing. And um, the decision was made to sell the property and get out um, while we could still make some money on it. Yeah, because a lot of those those things just, uh, you know, the tabletop collapsed and, um, you know, for one reason or another, but, you know, not because of the, um, the genre or the, just the Battletech's uh, line, just because the, the whole, you know, their method of making the miniatures collapsed for them. Um, but it was sad to see. Yeah, and well, it wasn't just that. Uh, there was also the, uh, the whole problem with the distributor network collapsing from the collectible card bubble. A um, bunch of other stuff that, that happened right around that same time, and it became a perfect storm. You know, it wasn't just FASA and Battletech that uh, was impacted. There were companies that went out of business. Now, uh, talking about licensing and Battletech, was Robotech, the anime, anything to do with Battletech? 
that's a complicated story and one that I should not get into right now while Pax is trying to get us on to another topic. Um, there was a whole thing with Harmony Gold and a third party and a bunch of other stuff. And if you really want to know, hit me up after the show and I'll tell you the whole story. Yeah, the Forbidden 12. Yep, yep, yep. Hey, we we bought the rights. We just, you know, we didn't know that the guy didn't actually have them to sell and it got messy. But let's move let's move on. Uh Pax is poking us with the next three. Well, me and Puddles have already picked, so why don't you go ahead and pick one out, Andrew? Just don't pick Pex's topic. You already picked mine. <laughs> Damn it. I'm going to go with mine. What is the weirdest playable character you have seen actually work? Define actually work. Be playable over more than one session without crashing the campaign or a halting play for two hours while the GM looks up the damn rule. So instead of going to the min-max route, we're going to the not-optimal route. Yeah, so some character that you wouldn't have thought could work was a really weird concept, you know, maybe against genre or something that just... Everybody looked at the person who brought that character to the table and said, Yo, wait, what? And they said, roll with it, and it actually worked. <coughs> Kobold Baker with uh, infused magic sprinkles that, that had one bag that was actually the food. The other bag of sprinkles went kaboom. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that was my wife's character in uh, one of the playtests for my, my uh, game. Of course, in my settings... Kobolds are more like Dobby the House Elf from Harry Potter. I think for me it was a she that, in this version of it, it was a one-inch tall that was always invisible unless revealed itself and had like 1d1 minus 1 damage, so it could do no damage. But it was just kind of, what does it do in combat? Well, they found a way to utilize it. It was mainly, they kind of used it as a rogue to scout things out. And it kind of, because of its size, couldn't lift or do anything hardly. So it was kind of more of a before combat scouting and logistics uh, kind of character that worked out inevitably somehow. But yeah. I started playing in the 70s and we had a kind of uh, more loose way, a lot of role playing and one of my friends, uh, my friend, his character was this elf who would always take hallucinogenics, and he had a paralyzing fear of spiders. So the DM kept on having him uh, hallucinate spiders when there were other creatures, and it, he <laughs> ran a really weird play, weird character, but it worked. That's awesome. I think. For mine, I'm trying to think back, but I haven't been playing all that long, so I don't really have a good frame for what is weird and what shouldn't, like, what you'd automatically think wouldn't work. Like, I don't, if I see a character, I'm just going to think, oh, cool. Like, I have no, 
presumptions on that will never work. So the only thing I can think of that was as in not standard is a character. I it was um, cavalier, but inspired from Celtic mythology. So it was a sprite, a third party race from Pathfinder, uh, a sprite right with with the um, the mount as a corgi. Oh my gosh! I saw that coming, and I was just waiting for it. Yes, and it was it it is awesome. He's nearly died like. I think four or five times. Somehow he's still alive. I don't know how he's still alive. He's taken so much ability damage. It's crazy. But yeah, sprite riding a a, a corgi into battle. Um, yeah, I'm I'm all for that. Uh, I had one. We were talking about battle tech. Uh, and this is a matter of the character concept being kind of a little odd. The, the rest of the party were these hardened mercenaries and you know mech warriors that did so had like half their own repairs and so forth had been through all this crap and I brought in a new character who was uh, a he was a surfer and a con artist um who had had to leave his homeworld kind of abruptly and had won a, a an armored vehicle in a card game and join it uh, as a way to get off planet. Um, and so the rest of the party are all these, you know, scruffy uh, mech warriors in their their battle gear and so forth. And this guy shows up with his shirt open halfway down and three or four silver chains and blow dried hair walks up to the sergeant and says, Hey dude. It, it was a very inauspicious beginning. Um, the, the character actually worked out better than people expected. He wasn't even a mech warrior. I built him as a scout. Um, in this party of mech warriors, and it, it was it was odd. It got us into some weird stuff, and into all sorts of weird situations, and back out. And they kept wanting to know why, 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 why did you even bring this guy in? I mean, this is a mech warrior campaign. You, you're not even playing a mech warrior. Beautiful. Oh, the assault corgi. Cool. Yes. Tactical corgi. <laughs> Puddles, did you ever read Knights of the Dinner Table? I did not. What is that? It's a uh, comic book magazine that um, has a very humorous take on, uh, you know, RPGs, Dungeons and Dragons, but all kinds of things. And one of the things that they have in it, you can play a race called Pixie Fairies. And uh, it has, uh, you know, and it's a it's a humorous mag, uh, humorous comic, and uh, they have a lot of stuff in there about the pixie fairies um, when they have that in their um, comic book uh, line. That that it it might give you some inspiration. Inspiration for what? For running a sprite. Need inspir- I don't need inspiration to run my sprite. I run and find them out. What? See, Puddles is a sprite what? in real life. Hey now. 
Yeah, well, you know, she just needs some sugar and caffeine, and then uh, everybody gets out, gets out of the way. I, Doomsday. Not entirely sure how I feel about that comment. Thank you, though. Great. Yeah, I'll take it as a it probably was. Is it time for the next topic already? We went through them. All right, all right. Well, I picked the last one. Who picks this one? Not me. Not it. Let's trade Jason Sketch, whoever speaks first. This will be a long standoff. <laughs> I guess I'll choose uh, the one I put up there. The paralyzing fear of success. What did you mean by that? That's uh, like... Well, the thing that made me think about it the most is uh, on the wayward Kickstarter thing that uh, Tinkar posted, the person who had the successful Kickstarter but then has had so many delays because of depression and stuff like that. Having a really successful Kickstarter can be intimidating. Um, we just, this week delivered the soft cover of the last book from the Earth Dawn 4th Edition Kickstarter. It has taken us several years. Um, the Kickstarter hit a lot of stretch goals, um, and the Earth Dawn team had um, promised uh, a couple of extra books as stretch goals, and it's yeah, the then the the Kickstarter closed out and was way over what we had uh, thought it was going to bring in, and then we looked at all the stuff we'd committed to and went, oh crap. Chad, minis in there? I gotta ask. Sorry. Yeah, minis in there is a stretch goal. I gotta ask. No, there were no minis in the Earth Dawn uh, Kickstarter. Uh, we will be doing minis in the uh, 1879 uh, Miniatures War Game uh, Kickstarter, but it's a minis war game. Right, right, right. Yeah, um, uh, for me, sometimes I get a fear, the fear of success, like if I've done really good pencils on a drawing, but I know I've got to ink it so it scans right, I get nervous about whether or not the pen, the inks are going to ruin my pencils. But is that the fear of success or fear of failure? Well, it's a fear of ruining something I've already succeeded at. So fear of failure. Uh, kind of. But also, it's like, what does a dog do once it catches the car? <laughs> Smacks into it. I mean, taking this out of the, you know, like sort of a, uh, on topic, look at J.R. Martin and his book releases. Or any writer who hasn't produced a, a sequel to a really popular book. Fear that you'll complete it to your liking, but now it's got a fan base and will they like it? And you've suddenly the end of the road, no made it for yourself. Yeah, I think even, what's her name, Rowling had an issue with that, getting her last couple of books out there. Rowling almost stopped making the series after the third one when people started making slash fiction of Harry and Draco and that kind of stuff. She's like, nope, I'm not going to. She's like, nope, I, I, no, I'm done, I'm done. And Warner Brothers goes, 
we got a seven figure, a seven film deal. You got to finish these books. And, and now isn't she going back and saying, "Oh, all these characters are LGBTQ or something?" She's trying to, and nobody's buying it. Huh. You know, if, if you don't, you know, if, if you haven't shown it, no, you can't just tell us that uh, they were in the closet the whole time. That's just just bogus. Get over <laughs> yourself. I think she um, successfully hit the whiskey cabinet a few times. Yeah, there's that. There's also the uh, fear that comes when you have succeeded. Um, we were talking about, you know, following up to a successful novel, you know, writing the next one. That whole expectation that's now set up, you've got to do better than your last one. You've always got to do better than your last work. At what point do you outstrip your own talent? Is that sequel syndrome? Like how the second book has to live up to the first and it's often not as good because you're expecting something awesome and you just, it's not. Kind of, but you know, even if it's not a sequel, say you write a standalone book and then your next project is going to be another standalone book that's in a completely different uh, universe, different characters, but the quality yeah, of it still has to be better than the previous work. Otherwise, mm. people are going to say that you were just a flash in the pan, and okay, you know, you had one good book in you, and it's done. I would disagree with that the quality has to be better, because when I read books, if I read a standalone book, and I love it, what I'm afraid of with the other books is that the genre change will be too much, and that that will affect the writing. The writing could still be excellent, but if I don't like everything put together, that still has, um, it affects whether or not I want to read it. And go, jumping to another media here, I say the reverse is true in the movie genre. Sequels are terrible usually in comparison to the first or original. That expectation's flipped. I'm just going to put it out there. All, all, all movies made out of books are vastly inferior to the book. Just that too. That yeah. is true. Books better. Well, you have to chop so much out of the book in order to make it fit into the runtime of a movie. Except Gladiator. Horrible book. Great film. I did, I did have a friend who's a good example of this. When we were young, he uh, had a band and, uh, they slowly became successful enough to get a record contract. And as soon as they got the record contract, he dropped out of the band and got into a tonal jazz music. Wow. I mean, with absolutely no hope of any, you know, kind of record contract in his future. Right. Wow. I mean, it was bad for the band because he was the, you know, main singer and songwriter. And it was really, I think, the fear of success. Maybe that fear of, uh, you know, we've we've hit the big time. Is this where I peak? Yeah, and Can't. you know, it might be fear of failing. You know, just the tremendous fear that that they're on the verge of something, of success, and Jen's just stepping back. I mean, um, I think I saw the, the best example of, um, oh, with Will Wheaton talking about how. On, on Big Bang Theory, where he had been very successful in Stand By Me, but he was so young when he did that, then everything that happened afterwards 
he was never successful again, and it really hurt him. Well, look at um. I lost my thought. Go ahead. Uh, performance anxiety. Well, what about it? it was simply that the expectations were so great after a major success um, that, you know, afterwards he was just, you know, he didn't think he had the, the problem, I guess. But it just seemed to be that he could never live up to that standard again. Ah, I figured it. Uh, the, the Back to the music thing. Um, like a lot of punk rock bands, it's bad to be successful. You're considered a sellout if you sign a record contract of any kind. But hey, that's where the money's at, right? But that's no, that's just a different. I just argue is that is a different definition of success. If you define successful as making a lot of money, then yes, they made it big. But if you define successful as having a lot of fans and appealing to a lot of people that don't necessarily care about the money, then you've yeah, you've sold out, and then you're going to lose that fan base because they think less of you. Exactly, like you look at RPGs. I wish Gygax had never been the level of success he was because I enjoyed his creative material. But as soon as he was um, successful financially, he started playing the manager game. All these promised products that everyone was looking forward to just were never done by him anymore. And he just started doing things in management. It sucked. Hey, you got to go to the Playboy Mansion somehow, some way. No. (laughs) <laughs> talking about promised products and stuff like that. Sometimes I feel like I'm almost afraid to finish my game because then I have to think about every splat book or whatever like that afterwards that I would have to produce to keep it relevant. No more splat books. Ah. What are splat books? Any kind of book that's not the main core book. It's like Pathfinder. Uh, Monster Manual 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 13,000. You don't need well, a bookshelf. Even, you need a room full of bookshelves. Well, um, even library? more than that, like guide to books and, uh, um, you know, books about specializations and things. Those are the usually what are called the splat books after the main core rule books are completed. And no, a library is a building. It can be a room in a building. Any gathering of two or more books becomes a library. I disagree. Two or more hundred books. <clears throat> any eh. any stack of books that is for loan is a library. Look at Andrew getting all smart on us. Hey. I mean, any stack of books is for loan as long as um, as long as it comes back. Like, if you just take it off the shelf, read it there, put it back, you've loaned it from the shelf. If it follows the Dewey Decimal System, it's a library. <laughs> Fuck the Dewey, Dewey Decimal really? System. <laughs> hey, did the Dewey Decimal System is a, uh, a, a work of art. If you know the algorithm for it, you never have to look at a card catalog. Hey, I like the Dewey Decimal System, but Bear I haven't set foot to... in a library in a while. Bear in mind, you're talking to someone whose wife is a librarian, whose mother was a librarian, and who worked in the library as, uh, as a student worker while in college. 
I mean, people talk about newspapers <laughs> shutting down. Has anybody heard about what's happened to the libraries? Have tons of them shut down? They're trying. <laughs> They're like libraries where people get to learn things. Close them down. We want them stupid. Well, like Puddles just hit it right there. I haven't been in a library in ages, too. And I used to go all the time before the internet had like decent speed to it. Well, the candles kind of put to death the, the big library physical book collection. They're going to be about the size of a photomat coming up, and you'll just drive up and just, you know, not even need to do anything, just click it on the Wi-Fi. I could I see think, libraries transitioning to, like, PDF readers. I could see that. I, I think libraries as a concept need to change from, like, a play... Because even as they are right now, it's not just a place where books are. It's They're essentially community centers where you have classes or gatherings or stuff like that. And if they move their focus more onto that with the books as... Um, this guess instead of primary purpose secondary purpose and you have like access to internet like a lot of people in especially poorer communities if they don't have access to internet they go to the library to access that you know find out all sorts of things or like look for jobs and so on well I in think... england they used to have their um, you know their community centers and their you know their community education centers that provided all that and that's kind of what i'd like to see develop in the united states is uh you know, all this access, and it's mostly access to, um, you know, the internet and to, uh, you know, like, uh, you're going to be able to put every book in the world on one Kindle. It's just, there's, the, the memory system is just going so that, uh, that you don't need the physical books anymore. And what they need more is to teach people how to do things. And uh, I just think the concept of library has come to an end. Technology's defeated it. Yeah, um, mm. our the the city I live in, the libraries just announced that sometime this year they're doing away completely with late fees and zeroing out all late balances, just to get people to be able to come come back more. Because a lot of people are afraid to go back because they've got fines and stuff like that, like the blockbuster to Netflix situation. Yeah, I remember blockbusters. There's only one in existence still. Just one left. Well, Puddles, you're not as young as I thought you were based on how you were talking, if you remember Blockbuster. Well, not Blockbuster like the chain, but the concept of going to an actual place to rent out DVDs. Because I wasn't in the U.S. at that time. Actually, I, there's still a video rental place like two or three blocks there's away from what? where I live. I mean, Redbox is a thing, but that's... No, we lost you. Oh, no, you lost me. Never mind. We lost the puddles. Uh -huh, I'm back. No, nah, I've had rain all day. I've got puddles everywhere. <laughs> <sighs> I want to make sure we get to this. Our last topic here was this was yours, Jason. Yeah, that was mine. Um, and it's it's because uh, I'm uh, currently working on uh, indexing the uh, Ghosts of Salt Marsh that just came out. And so I'm, you know, really getting familiar with uh, the material. And they've done some very interesting things with it. I was kind of dreading uh, seeing what they would do. And um, it's in its way much, much better than I was hoping. And I'm hoping for much more similar uh, things from, um, you know, Hasbro, uh, Wizards of the Coast. 
And if you're not familiar with it, what they've done is um, Salt Marsh were um, old modules that are classically set in the Greyhawk setting. And um, they wanted to come out with something that they were going to be able to present to 5e players, but without having to know everything about Greyhawk, which is not a popular setting. Um, and uh, at the same time, not just being Forgotten Realms, they wanted to have this open to just about everything they have IP for. And surprisingly, I, I felt they did a very, very uh, good job on this. And I don't have much respect for uh, Hasbro, you know, Wizard of the Coast material. So by setting neutral design, what they have done is they've taken old IP and they've carved out a section of, of the Greyhawk setting and they've made it so that you can honestly use it with just about any fantasy roleplay setting. At the same time, they've added a veneer of, you know, Greyhawk setting lore um, that, that somebody who really wants uh, it set in Greyhawk can do it. And finally, they've added seven old adventures, um, some Greyhawk, some Forgotten Realms, things from Dungeon Mag. And what they did, um, they didn't update them at all. They're just the old uh, material. Um, but what uh, they've done is, in the modules themselves, they have stripped out. Uh, there are no stat blocks. Uh, it is just... Um, basically, uh, you know, a text description of what is happening. And you have the monsters just saying, uh, for example, here are two hobgoblins with no stats, four bandits and four scouts with no stats. And um, they have just pulled out the, uh, you know, the, the names of, of things and put them in. So you could drop this in to any edition. Um, okay. What, what, let me let me uh, interrupt for just a second. If I understand you correctly, what you're actually talking about is not setting neutral, but system neutral. Or do you actually mean that it's only usable within multiple different editions of Dungeons and Dragons, and not with um, other game systems? Now that's one of the interesting parts. Is that the new material is 5e. Uh, the appendix material, which is you know a good portion of the book, is 5e. All of the, the adventures that were designed for other editions of D&D, uh, &D, like first edition, second edition, um, even things for 3e, they have had their um, stats removed, and you could honestly, they those are um, uh, fantasy roleplay neutral in it for the most part um so you have this real sandwich here of uh, material that is um 5e and then you have material that is really open uh for anybody to come in easily and use it for any system not necessarily from hasbro you could drop pathfinder in here tunnels and trolls anything you want to start applying stats to these these old modules have had their stats stripped away so what, what we're actually looking at is something that is system agnostic uh, that is specifically designed for sword and sorcery fantasy role play, but is system agnostic, but is contained within a shell of 5e uh, material and mechanics. 
Yes, and uh, it is also setting neutral because what they have done is taken setting material and they have um, encapsulated the, the section that could also be dropped into any setting. Um, so it's both setting and uh, partly system neutral. So my question with that is, was the aim of that to make it more accessible to longtime players or to make it more accessible to players who have never played it before and who want to use it for their system? According to what they were talking, there's um, Kate Walsh, who's uh, the, the, one of the lead designers here. Uh, she wanted it to be accessible to new players. And of course, by new, when they're talking from Wizards, they mean new 5e players. As in players who have never played tabletop RPGs before. And are going to be playing specifically 5e. And that's why the Strange Gods box set came out. And, uh, you know, that is an intro to 5e. You have box set bubbles? <laughs> we wish. Someone else stole our name. Yeah, as far as, a, as setting neutral design... Um, I've got a piece I'm working on right now that um, is, while it is specifically Pathfinder compatible as far as the mechanics go, um, it's, um, it's not specific to any existing um, setting for Pathfinder. Uh, it's, it's, if you redid the mechanics you could use it in any uh any frp not uh, that you wanted so yeah i'm i'm all for material that you can lift and shift and use in whatever game you happen to be playing um this one feels kind of like Linux commands being implemented in the Windows uh, shell. Uh, it, it feels very much like, okay, here is this mechanics agnostic material, but we're delivering it in a wrapper of 5E, and we're delivering it specifically to get people to play 5E. You know, it, it feels like, okay, we're going to give you some Linux commands, but you got to install Windows to do it. I mean, I like to see more system-neutral stuff um, that just has, like, I don't know, let's say a room has four zombies in it. What that four zombies means to you and whatever system you're playing, that's up to you. Um, if you, your system doesn't have zombies in it, well, that's where you get creative and make your own. Or you take out the zombies and change to something else. I like to see more of those products out there. I think those would do very well um, in in uh, on the market, honestly. And surprisingly, yeah. that's what they have here in this uh, Ghosts of Saltmarsh book. Yeah, since it was in a five E wrapper, I was actually hoping that it would have some like new aquatic races or something like that. Because we've been hoping that Selkie would become official somehow. But it has absolutely no new races or anything like that in it, so we we passed up on buying the book. If you want to play a Selkie, uh, the Selkie is becoming official with the 1879 uh, Players and GMs Companions, uh, which are in layout at this time. So you can play them in a steampunk world. I mean, we got our... Uh... 
see King's Malice thing they can go right with Ghost Assault Marsh uh, for Frog Gods at the moment. So yeah, so, I mean, I, I think there's there's a lot of money, and I think there's a lot of market possibilities with system neutral design. I honestly do. Uh, some that uh, Metal Weaves Games has been doing with their like baby bestiary and the Atlas Animalia stuff is that they'll present the book as is, and then the stats for the game it's made for come in a separate PDF, so that the book can actually be completely system neutral. It's once you get the stats and the extra stuff that that's all that matters for the game. Right. Yeah, I've seen a couple of uh, supplements that were put out similar to that where the book itself is the uh, adventure and, and, or the setting or the location or whatever. And then there's appendices with here's the stats for this uh, mechanic, here's the stats for that mechanic. Just you know, pick which appendix uh, you need for the uh, game you're playing. Yeah. Right. I think How many of us uh, just turn our nose at something just because it's not in the system we're at? I mean, I, I'd love to see some just like a bestiary book with just the creatures in it and maybe a an encounter paragraph description of them, no stat blocks in it. Yeah, as, as I've mentioned before in a previous Coast to Coast, that's kind of how I plan to do my monster manual when I get to it, is the first half is just going to be almost like those old encyclopedias or whatever, where you'd see like a picture of a bunch of animals and then it have later in the appendix, it have like the blackout of it and go creature one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then there would be the information on it, but you get presented with the picture um, raw, so to speak. Or those separate conversion guides and stuff of that nature. Yeah. Um, To play devil's advocate, what I'm hearing is, Designing system neutral is better for new players because they can adapt it to any system they want, right? Well, I'd say it's better for older players. Newer players, I think, like structure because they don't have the experience or, you know, um, uh, mostly the experience to know that they can do that and they like to see a system that is presented to them. And I think that's why they follow things like I'm going to follow only Pathfinder or 5D. Right, that's that's why I asked you who your the what you earlier mentioned, like who was that marketed for? Because if it's new players who have never played anything before, if you take away the stat blocks, that's essentially the most important part of the game. Because if they have to make their own stat blocks, the game could do very very wrong and not be a pleasant experience. GMs, yeah. potential GMs, and coffee tables. Well, I mean, that was the big problem with, you know, uh, the origins of the game was Gygax himself, he didn't realize that uh, players would want settings or adventures. He thought everybody would be out there designing their own. And I'm really surprised at this from Hasbro because uh, it, it is marketed for 5e, but that non-stat block business is going to throw um, new DMs into, um, you know, they're, they're going to have to fill in things and Sorry about that. It's it's going to be tough. Yeah, because for DMs with experience, if they know how to adjust, because all these monsters without stat blocks or NPCs without stat blocks, the stat blocks are essentially used for for combat. Because roleplay, you don't have stat blocks, fine, sure, that's an occasional check that you can um, hand wave. 
But for combat, if you have to make your own stat blocks and you're not experienced at it, you could either overshoot or undershoot, and it could either be way too easy or way too hard. And for myself, I run nothing but pre-written adventures. I don't want to spend the time on stat blocks. I've done it before. I, I don't like spending 20-plus hours on doing a one-off dungeon, creating my own stat blocks for them. That, that's part of the reason I like pre-gens, other than I like the adventure I'm running or, and then the ease of it. It's just one less thing I have to do as a DM. Yeah, not everyone enjoys that part of it either. And more power people who love spending all day making stat blocks and their own custom encounters. God love them, but it, it just irritates me. Yeah, I'm very surprised. I mean, for me it works, but I, I do wonder about the newbie player or, or just somebody who just doesn't have the time or, or you know, they're buying a module. But uh, I like what they're doing, and but I'm not their target customer. Right, I don't think there's anything wrong with what they're doing at all. I, I think it's a different part of the market and a good part of the market. Yeah, so I, I think it's a great idea. I just don't think it should be targeted towards new players. That's, I think it's shooting them in the foot, but I really don't know well enough about that. Well, I don't know because um, you know this. I don't know if that's what their market idea was initially because they're out. Sorry, they're pulling out old IP here, very old, 40-year-old for some of it. And um, I, I don't know if this, what their idea was with this book. But with all of 5e, I just kind of consider it all for new players. You know, I, I have a crazy idea here because they just, I don't know if you guys heard, they just announced that Eberron was going to get a new book. I think it's because they're opening up a lot of these other settings like Ravenloft and where they're going beyond the kitchen sink that is Forgotten Realms. So that may be their play here. Uh, now that I'm thinking about it, since they're opening up their past former settings, they want to be able to slide things into whatever setting. That's just a guess, so take it as you will. Who knows? But this is also not the first time they've done this. They did it with Yawning Portal, and maybe that was so successful that uh, I haven't had that one myself, so I... I don't know how they did the old modules, whether they were updated or whether their settings, their stats stripped, but it's one I have to get to look at now. Well, none of us were at the Watsi team meeting slash Hasbro, so who knows? But the new material, which only takes up 35 pages, has um, not only um, is set for 5e, it also has new 5e material in there for their rule system. Which I don't understand at all. What, the fact that there's new material, or...? They talked about it. They added that uh, they needed to add some material for their seafaring stuff. And it seems like they're trying to push that as, um, you know, future lines... I, I don't know if there's something with pirates or whatever, but they seem to be pushing, uh, from what I was listening to on their AD&D Twitch channel, um, seafaring things. Uh, quite possibly. I mean, they have a slower product release schedule than they've had in previous systems, so um, I don't know what their design timeline but there could be very well be more aquatic adventures coming our way from them well compared to 
3.0 and 3.5, a new hardback a week would be slowing down for them. <laughs> right? Must be nice to be able to maintain that level of production. They got the Hasbro money. Well, they got the Hasbro money and uh, the the ability to resource like Hasbro, you know, throw teams of uh, 10, 12 people at, uh, at each book. Oh, I don't yeah, know. If you look at the design. You know, I was talking last time about uh, people from Dragon I didn't see anymore, and I see in Ghosts of Salt's March, uh, Wolfgang Bowers, one of the listed designers. Um, as far as the Hasbro money goes, I don't know if maybe they did something in the 90s with some of their IPs they have, but the waste that they've got all those IPs and haven't integrated some of them into their role-playing game lines is kind of sad to me. Well, look well, at like writers like James Spawn uh, in our tavern. He's written for tons of people, including his own company. Or uh, the Monty Cooks, or the uh, Ed Greenwoods. There's plenty of freelancers, well-known freelancers out there that you can get to write for your stuff. Well, one of the reasons a lot of people was very mad at, uh, who was it, Adkinson, from, uh, who starred Wizard of the Coast, was Hasbro did not care about the role-playing game um, material. They bought it for Pokemon and Magic the Gathering, and that's it. And then the um, all the RPG stuff was just like an afterthought, and it's the way it's been treated for years. Well, economically, it was an afterthought. Um, it's a much slimmer portion of the entertainment dollar than the uh, ma than Magic the Gathering. Oh yeah, I know a massive comic sh comic and game shop in the Dallas area. It is literally only kept alive because of the Magic the Gathering stuff. Well, I believe right. Atkinson got from Hasbro about, what, $287 million. And, um, you know, an outrageous, I mean, seriously outrageous amount of money. But it wouldn't have been one cent different if he had just kept the RPG. Which would have been an interesting play out of having to redo it. That's all hearsay, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it's our time for product promotion. Mr. Andrew, you're up first. All right. So, Bassa Games, um, producers of Earthdawn. Uh, Earthdawn 4th Edition, the Kickstarter, uh, has just wrapped up this week. We shipped the... Last of the books, the, the Elven Nations books, uh, this week. So that has wrapped up. We've got a bunch of new stuff coming. Uh, there's uh, some setting books. The city-state of Iapos, which is run by uh, people descended from a dragon and with all the attitude that you would expect from such folks. A bunch of other stuff coming along. Um, 1879, which is the steampunk sequel to Earth Dawn uh, takes the place uh, where Shadowrun used to be in our cosmology. Uh, you'll see some 1879 books and a lot of the reference books used for it in the photo I just put up. 
Uh, we also have Demon World. We have an active Kickstarter running for Demon World. Uh, if you don't have enough Ice Witches in your life, uh, go see our Demon World Kickstarter. Uh, we are doing the Isthak uh, uh, Army Book and some new minis to go with it. Minis are being produced by Rel Partha Europe. Um, then we also have Noble Armada, which is the Starship Miniatures Combat game set in the Fading Suns universe. And let's get the usual spray of social media links for the various presences. In the middle of that, you'll see a Patreon for the Wandering Beekeeper that is my personal non-FASA uh, pat, uh, Patreon, where I'm currently developing a system uh, that is classless and levelless and is driven by player action and uh, the consequence of player action. It's basically trying to take the idea of player agency and make it the mechanic. <coughs> uh, various things going on with FASA and with what I'm doing. Segway. Uh, sketchbook, you're up. Okay, I'm about to post my uh, social links here. My Twitch, which I usually do drawing on several times a week. I don't have a set schedule for that. My Patreon, that's kind of under construction because I'm getting really ramping up trying to get back into finishing up my game, and my personal Facebook, because that's the place I'm usually at. Puddles. Puddles is from the Strange Gods podcast podcast and from the Swords of Misery podcast podcast. You can find us at S-T-R-A-N-G- E-G-O-D-S-P-O-D-C-A-S-T dot C-O-M slash Swords of Misery. Uh, Strangegodspodcast.com uh, slash Strangegodspodcast or Strangegodspodcast.com slash Swords. 20%, 26% misery. Because apparently we're only 26% miserable, but it's wrong because we're all miserable all the time. And our goal is to make you as miserable as we are. And we succeed most of the time because we're a shit podcast and you shouldn't listen. Stay far away from us. We have no interest in you, but we would feel very happy if you listened. Uh, Jason? Well, mine's pretty simple. I'm a hobbyist. Uh, I'm currently working on a Ghosts of Saltmarsh uh, Index, if you're interested. They didn't provide one with the book. And uh, I'll give a link to my blog. All right. Well, for the tavern side of things, if you want to be a subscriber, subscribe to this podcast to listen to right now. For less than a pack of gum. You could help me get a pack of gum if two of you subscribed. For Frog God Games, however, uh, we have a couple of interesting things. First of being our Kickstarter. We just crashed the our last official stretch goal. We're going to have to come up with more now. For Sea King's Malice, and 
that's a aquatic adventure. For those who have been listening, we've been talking about aquatic adventures. We also have an Indiegogo game going up right now called Mystery at Raven Rock. It is the sequel to the uh, Raven Reach uh, Indiegogo. And then the frogs, Twitter, and Facebook. Because we need more souls for the Doomsday Machine. Please don't subscribe and those, like. Don't click on those links. No, Tex made it. me click on those links and I've regretted it ever since. Guys, this is a PSA. Don't click on those links. Don't be like Puddles and click on the links. No, no, don't do it. Don't do it, guys, please. Do it. It's a trap. It's a trap. Don't do it. All right. Now we shall unmute our very large audience and do oh, Q&A. Why? <laughs> He's muted on his end. Yay. Well. Don't leave dead air. I'll start telling weird stories again. Please, God, now. Please. We have lots right. of puns. Rather than rather than dead air, let's let's have some semi semi alive air. Just every time Andrew starts to say something, one of us needs to jump in with like, nope. And then this one time I was doing this thing out of this place and then this other thing happened and then we all something. A thing and a thing and a thing, three's company too. I don't know what that means, but yes. Reference to a really bad sitcom, I think. But massively popular. <laughs> Which is you, the Laverne Shirley show, and Puddles should definitely be one of those two. The Gustavus non disputandum est. <laughs> exactly. Now, Virtuoso, you don't have a microphone hooked up, but you can ask questions in the chat, and we will address them if you have anything you want to address well, to anybody on this podcast. Uh, you know, like, uh, you know, we could ask uh, Puddles uh, some no, sort of personal question. Don't ask Puddles anything. Don't ask Puddles anything. Puddles is under contract. Puddles can't say anything. <clears throat> Melkor doesn't have time Puddles is under an NDA. That's a lie. I didn't say it was Melkor who made me sign that NDA. Does Nobody she or doesn't she? Nobody knows. I'm not allowed to say. No comment. No comment. <laughs> Don't forget to tell Melkor about Vin Diesel's Melkor tattoo. Oh, yeah. Hang on. Let me just do that right now. Mockery. Right. Huh. Much mockery. By the way, Vin Diesel's character. Is also called Melkor. There we go. There, now you know for sure. Yeah. I told him. There, that's well, my contribution. Any parting words for our listeners before I kick Craig out? Bye, Craig. You are the embodiment of all our listeners, and we love you for all that you do. Nobody appreciates you, but I do. Half yeah. rations for Craig. No, leave uh, Craig alone. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much just pickles that likes Craig. I feel bad for Craig. Nobody likes him. You just call puddles pickles because that's great. 
I'm going to pretend you said that. 